With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end. It's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. Well, they walked into Madrid with hope in their hearts. And they'll walk away with the greatest prize in club football. Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool's King to the Cot are champions of Europe once again. Everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Cop and Fracast, the Liverpool-based podcast on the Touchline Fracast Network. I am your host, Krish, and this week I am joined by Ellis. What's going on, mate? All good, man. All good. I'm also joined by Mike. Yo, yo, yo. How are you doing, What's my What's going man? on? All good on my end, thank you. Brilliant. We all we were also joined by Julian, but he has uh, departed to go for a jog. Um, as we are recording this, uh, we're recording this intro um, after we have recorded with our um, special guest for this week, who we announced earlier on today was um, Rafa Honigstein of the Athletic and of BT Sport, uh, who is also author of the Jurgen Klopp uh, focused book Klopp Bring the Noise, uh, which you can find on. All the platforms where books are sold. So hopefully you all know where books are sold, which which would be nice. Um, so yeah, we um, <laughs> we had a we had a really good conversation with Rafa where we touched on touched on a lot of key points, covering the return of the Bundesliga, um, Bundesliga talent, um, not only in the Bundesliga itself, but but in the Premier League. And we also discussed um, Jurgen Klopp himself um, from all the elements that Rafa touched on in the book. 
it was a really good conversation and I hope you have as much time, as much fun listening to it as we did recording it. So without further ado, here is our exclusive interview with Rafa Honigstein. I'm actually delighted to say that we're joined uh, on this week's pod by Raphael Honigstein of The Athletic. Um, Rafa, how are you? I'm very well, thank you for asking. How are you? Um, any football whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, the football has been worse than the actual lockdown, I think, or the lack of football, I should say. Um, I mean, we're, we're lucky here, you know, we're in the part of London where it's quite green. Um, I don't really want to complain too much. I'm sure that there are many more people in much more difficult circumstances. We're also all healthy, thank God. So yeah, it could have been agree. a lot worse. Fingers crossed. Uh, also joined this everyone. week by Ellis, Mike and Julian. Boys, how are you doing? Yeah, we're good, man. We're, good. we're not going to do long intros because you know everyone knows us. It's more talking to Raf right now. So, so let's let's uh, let's go straight into it then. So um, obviously, Bundesliga restarted this weekend, much to I think the world's delight more than anything to see some football back in action. Um, how do you feel that that first weekend went, and was it um, as drastically different as most people uh, and most analysts thought? Well, I think by and large it went really well. We haven't seen any teams withdraw late on. You know, I think the nightmare scenario would have been a Friday night, three or four positive tests or Saturday morning and suddenly you don't have two or three games going on. I think at that point the league might have said, you know what, we tried our best, but we just can't do it. And we might still get to that position because the next round of testing is going to be done, I think, tomorrow. Players have gone back to their families. Just have to keep your fingers crossed that, you know, nothing happens in the meantime. But... As far as the start is concerned, or the start of the restart, I think it's gone as as, as well as anyone could have really hoped for. Uh, there was no real no real incidents. Um, the football was actually pretty good. There were goals everywhere. You know, it wasn't um, completely devoid of of action and quality. And uh, yeah, I mean, the fact that there's no crowd, we'll have to get used to it. I mean, I've seen a few games like that before. Dortmund played PSG in the Champions League behind closed doors. Um, there were one Bundesliga game, Gladbach-Köln, before uh, football came to a close, which was a similar uh, atmosphere. It's it's not the same, but even at, I don't know, 50%, 40% of what it usually is, football is still better than no football. So that's my my take. And Raph, looking at the looking at the league, the Bundesliga and the return of the Bundesliga, what sort of effect should be that's going to have on, on other leagues? So we look at the Premier League and the fact that some teams return to training this week. You know, are, are there any lessons we can learn from the, from the Bundesliga? Well, I think first of all, the fact that football has come back in Germany will will be encouraging for the other leagues, and I think will um, maybe add some kind of momentum uh, for a restart. I don't think it necessarily adds pressure, but I think it adds a bit more positive momentum because people say, look, it can be done. It is reasonably safe. Uh, we all have to live with it. I think that's the, for me, that's the bigger message here because I understand when people are saying it's not safe, it's too early. Unfortunately, three, four months, five, six, maybe six months down the, t- down the line, nothing will change as far as football is concerned. There still won't be any crowds. I don't think we'll have a vaccine by then. I hope we will. But there's a very big likelihood that we won't see any crowds back until early 2021. So whatever your feelings are about, you know, rushing back or whatever, this is this is going to be the this is going to be the deal. 
And um, I think the Bundesliga having been able to kick off a little bit earlier is less to do with, with Germany, uh, less to do with, with the football, but more to do with how Germany has handled the coronavirus crisis. Um, on the pod that I produced for the, for the Athletic, we had uh, Christoph Biermann, who lives in Berlin, and he said the funniest thing about this whole thing is that what looked like completely strange, bizarre, like a month ago when people were saying football could give back, now, by the time it has come back, restaurants are reopened again, bars are open, um, you know, people are hanging out in the streets, and actually football looks almost like it's behind the curve with all the masks and all the protocol. So I can only hope that by the time we will see the Premier League back sometime in June, we'll maybe in a similar position where it doesn't feel as strange and as risky as it does maybe now. Uh, speaking of the Premier League and they're coming back next month, was, um, and, you know, the parallels with Germany has started again, was a null and void ever an option um, in Germany? Because over here, you know, it, there is still, you know, as we've heard today, um, Troy Deeney is back, has um, decided to not go to training, which is fair. Um, was that ever an option in Germany, a viable option as well? And do you think, you know, the same should be applied in the Premier League? So first of all, I think it's really important to understand that the Bundesliga had to come back for, for money reasons. It was not really to do with the sporting integrity. Yes, of oh, course, they want to finish the season. But the most important thing for them was to put the games on because the last part of the TV payment domestically hadn't been paid yet. And we're talking about 300 million euros, which is a lot of money for Bundesliga 1 and 2. Uh, so there was a real big need and a very unified view as well from all 36 teams that we had to come back. So whether you're in a relegation fight or not, you wanted to come back. And that then had a knock-on effect on all their endeavors. So because they wanted to come back, because they needed to come back, the idea that you know some teams might say, you know what, let's just call this whole thing off, we'll just stop, it never came up because the need to, to put the games on was so great. The only thing, the only kind of um, contentious debate now started a few days ago when they said, okay, what do we do if having come back, we then cannot finish? Let's say, you know, half the teams are in quarantine, we run out of time, uh, or the politics change or the situation on the ground change and we cannot finish. That's when the arguments go, how you finish the league when it cannot be finished on the pitch. But the idea that you somehow pretend this league never happened, I don't think was ever on the agenda. And if you look around Europe, even the teams who have cancelled, they have all find a way to work out what the final league table looks like. No one has said, you know what, we pretend that this league has never happened. It's, it's just not an option. I don't know why this debate or where it really came from in the UK, but as far as I know, um, with the possible exception of Karen Brady of West Ham, who perhaps thought it was in her interest to, to pull forward that idea, no one serious ever considered it. Yeah. 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 yeah, that is actually good to hear, yeah. I haven't, haven't seen the, obviously, thankfully, the league has come back and uh, obviously we watched a few games courtesy of BT Sport. Um, we saw that, we saw that the, uh, when I say the touches of the players and, you know, the feel of the game was a bit slower than what it was when they left. Do you think the players would have used a bit more time to, like, get to match speed and a bit work on their conditioning? Well, the interesting thing is, if you look at the actual numbers, um, the numbers are either up or at the same level. So in terms of sprints, in terms of running distance, in terms of net game time, where it's actually up, 
Um, I think what looked slow actually was not slow. It just looked to us because there was no reaction, right? Somebody does something and nothing happens. There's no crowd noise. There's no excitement. So I think everything feels a lot more as if you're kind of playing in a vacuum. But um, the underlying numbers and, and all the KPIs actually show that it was very, very quick and very fast. And because there were fewer breaks with the crowd not getting players so emotional and the referee perhaps finding it much easier to control the game, um, a lot of teams actually felt that there was more football being played and it was quite exhausting. And of course, they were able to use up to five subs as well to, to make up for that uh, lack of fitness. So I was actually pleasantly surprised just how decent uh, a contest and looked in most of these games. And I think that that is a really encouraging sign because after, what, eight weeks out, if the first round of games looks like that, then I think by the time we're three or four games into this um, last part of the se- of the season, That's good, the football it, should be really excellent. It didn't again. feel as I first feared. It kind of would have had a bit of a pre-season vibe to it. It did feel very competitive and like um, things hadn't really stopped, which is, which is really good to see. Uh, so piggybacking off the back of that, when do you believe that German football will return to its normal state, as it were? I know you said something a little bit earlier on, but... It's very difficult to predict because the answer is really not related to football in many ways. It, it comes down to what kind of solutions can be found to make it safe for large masses of people to congregate in the same space. Um, there is talk um, that they might let some sections of, of the crowd back in in September, as early as September. Uh, that is not the official line. That is just local prime ministers who are in charge for only their uh, regional uh, state. They're thinking about it or they're saying maybe we can do it. So basically you'll just have a um, a person in the stand every, every three or four stand, every three or four seats. So rather than have 80,000 capacity, you might have 20,000. Whether that is feasible or not, I'm not sure. But I think... The way that it's gone so far, which has been very positive, people will try to find ways to get more and more people in. I think that is the dynamic. And again, it kind of reflects what's happening in Germany because I saw only today you can go back to a beer garden and have a have a drink there sitting with, I think, at up to one other household. And things are kind of moving in that direction. I think they'll probably find a way to get fans in much quicker than we initially believed, so but still it won't be, be cutouts the full stadium. Being. will only be a small section of it. But <laughs> <laughs> <Well>, that's that's <laughs> what Borussia Mönchengladbach have done. They're the only club, really, who have some kind of fan representation, even if it's in two-dimensional form at the moment. But again, I think that's going to be really an interesting debate. I heard today that Carsten Kramer, the managing director of Dortmund, said, we basically made a deal with our fans that we will not try to replace them by some kind of artificial... Uh, means we will not have virtual fans. We will not have virtual noise. We we think it's kind of disrespectful to our real fans. But I think that um, you know rights holders or neutral viewers will probably after a while demand or at least expect some kind of thing, some kind of action going on in the background. And it'd be really interesting to see what the Premier League does because I think they have far fewer scruples when it comes to 
Um, the fans' concerns, I think they're just much more concerned with the product and how it looks, and they might do a few interesting things. And and looking at the, the German football as, as like, you know, sort of football and pitch, what I found quite interesting was, you know, Dortmund are now able to put up a, a fight against, against Bayern Munich and there's some sort of title race going on, which is quite interesting. But in previous years, Bayern has won the league at a canter. And I guess I wanted to get your thoughts as to why Bayern found it so easy in Germany. I mean, since Klopp, they haven't really had a force that's challenged them on a consistent basis. I mean, Wolfsburg have had a go and Dortmund have had a go in previous years, but it's never really been sustained over a long period of time. So I guess the question is, you know, why, why is that? Well, I think there's a few reasons. I mean, first of all, Bayern are the wealthiest club and that will always give you a head start. Bayern basically need to get something really wrong in order for somebody else to win the title. It happened in 2012, the last time. It could have happened last season, where they had a pretty poor season, a very average season by their standards. And Dortmund were leading uh, right up until the final third of the campaign and then unfortunately uh, kind of broke apart and uh, basically threw, threw it away. And this year we had a similar situation up until November where Bayern were in fourth and fifth spot, weren't really at the races at all. But then, as is often the case with Bayern, they will just ruthlessly fire the manager. The fact that he's won a double before counts for nothing. And he's gone. And a new guy who's coming in, Hansi Flick, the players love him. His football is much better. And now Bayern look unstoppable again, even though they're only four points clear. So it's, it's hard for everybody else because the financial power of Bayern is so, is so pronounced. Dortmund do, do their very best to catch up. Uh, and they should have been in a position to really benefit from Bayern slipping up last year. It's on them that they didn't do it. Maybe this year they can because they still have Bayern to come to Dortmund, even though it's going to be an empty stadium. If they still keep it to four points until next week, it's happening on Tuesday, Dortmund-Bayern. I think they do have a realistic chance, but Bayern, of course, are the favourites once more. To expand on that question a bit more, um, you mentioned uh, how, you know, there's been, a, there's always, because I, I remember last season, it was kind of a similar thing. And this season, it was a similar thing with Leipzig and uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach. Blackback. And uh, there's always that, there's always that time where a team would kind of, you know, get a bit ahead of Bayern Munich. But somehow, I think it, it is even around, you know, March or April, Bayern Munich just somehow managed to just get a five-point lead out of nowhere. So what do you think that is? Um, why is there no sustainability in teams like, for example, Leipzig and Dortmund, who can't sustain that, you know, that gap between them and Bayern when they have it? Well, I think with Dortmund, really, it was was their own their own faults. Defensively, they were terrible last year. They couldn't defend corners. They had real problems on counter-attacks. They were really lacking balance. And Lucien Favre was under a lot of pressure. I mean, people forget, but I think he got very close to being fired. And there was a constant debate whether he is the right manager and whether a different manager might be able to get more out of this team. Um, so with Leipzig, I'd be much less harsh because, you know, this is... Um, still a very young team, both in, in age structure, but also in terms of how long they've been in the league. It's only, I think, what, their fifth year now. So you can maybe expect them not to be quite as consistent. And the problem um, that teams have usually is when Bayern <laughs> get knocked out early in the Champions League, which happened, of course, as you know very well, then um, <laughs> they kind of just pull away because then they say, OK, well, you know, now we have to win the league because if we don't win the league, it's going to be seen a disaster as a disaster. And every single week, we're going to have massive pressure and it's going to be a 
talking point and there'll be going to be repercussions and the atmosphere is going to be horrible in Munich. I mean, that's the thing. If they don't win, it's it's just a not a nice place to be around. And that's oh, wow. ultimately why they win so much because the alternative is just not tolerable. They just cannot stand not winning, <laughs> um, which which works in their favor in the long run. Oh, that's that's great to hear. Um, well, we are a Liverpool podcast, so we're going to get into some Liverpool chat and some things that we um, discuss um, with Liverpool. And one of our main talking points is actually a young Guinean player that we bought from RB Leipzig, who's been somewhat, let's say, underwhelming, <laughs> underwhelming um, to quite a few fans. Um, and that man is Naby Keita. Um, but that, but we're not too harsh on him. Well, we are sometimes, but we're kind of trying to get to the bottom of what is going on with the, you know, the curious case of Naby Keita. Because we have felt like, you know, it has been kind of a theme where a player would come from the Bundesliga and find it very hard to adapt. So some examples that we thought up was um, Nikatarian when he came to Man United, um, Xhaka, uh, Joe Linton this season at Newcastle, and Naby Keita, who's been a bit touch and go um, and hasn't found a consistent form. And compared to Asane um, and Ilkay Gundogan and uh, Joel Matip, he hasn't hit the ground running. So do you have any insight on why that is? Yeah, I wouldn't put it down to him coming from the Bundesliga because you can also, you know, mention certain Roberto Firmino or an Aubameyang or, or Balak. Or, you know, I mean, there's, there's loads who did very well and will continue to do well. I think with him, it was a case of, and still continues the case, of fitness. I mean, the guy just cannot get three or four months without picking up, picking up injuries. And you know that playing for Jurgen Klopp is all about having the energy, having the legs, also being robust enough to, to play that kind of style. And unfortunately, he keeps breaking down. I don't think it is necessarily deeper than that. I don't think there are any mental issues. I don't think there's any problems tactically because part of the reason why um, Klopp went for him is because at Salzburg and then Leipzig later, he was playing very similar style of football. And mm -hmm. that's why these kind of players, they tend to work for Klopp, whether they go from um, you know, uh, Salzburg to Dortmund or from um, maybe Leipzig to Liverpool, they un he understands that this is exactly what's needed. But I can't give you a reason why physically it hasn't worked out for him. Um, he had this mysterious kind of thing in, in Leipzig where he broke down one day in training. I don't know. I honestly, I don't know. Um, all I would say is that if you look at the performances the very few that he has actually put in. I saw the other day somebody put up some numbers and they are just unbelievably good. I yeah, mean, even when we, uh, this season in the Champions League against Salzburg, I was like, this guy, this is what we paid for. This is the quality that we want, but it's just not there on a consistent basis. So I think it's it's down to fitness and um, whether they can sort this out or not or what it is, you know, what the real problem is, I, I couldn't tell you. But that is really the... That's the, the be and end all. And, you know, sometimes we have players, we tend to kind of forget about them. Uh, I would say maybe a Sebastian Deister, for example, who are superstars in the making, but for whatever reason, physically or mentally, just can't quite do it. And they, they never quite become the player that they sh should have become. I hope this is not going to be the case with him. I think he still has a lot of time to, to, to sort it out. But, um, you know, it does happen in football. That for whatever reason, you just cannot fulfill your, fulfill your potential. Yeah, and looking at another RB Leipzig player, so Timo Werner has made a desire to join Liverpool, no secrets at all. And what I find fascinating about this move is that there's an appetite on certain, certainly his side. I think RB Leipzig are quite open to selling to Liverpool. And Liverpool obviously have, a, have an interest in the player. 
And I, I think he's quite similar to Mo Salah when we first signed Mo Salah in terms of the level he's performing at. And I guess my question to you is, you know, what can he add to Liverpool if he was to sign for Liverpool? I know obviously transfers will be a bit complicated by coronavirus and the potential financial ramifications of coronavirus. But if Timo Werner was to sign for Liverpool, what would he bring to, to Liverpool? Well, I think the, the attraction is very clear because he is a guy who is a halfway house between a striker and a winger. And if you know Liverpool's system, how they don't really play with a centre-forward, but they play with two wide players and a nine-and-a-half um, through the middle, Werner would be just a wonderful addition to that on either side, maybe even through the middle as well if you really have to. It's probably not his best position. And for, you know, for a team that's been very successful, even on the other occasion without the three, I think to have a genuine alternative to the three and enabling them to change around because you can put Werner in for Firmino and then move some of the other, the other guys through the middle, no problem. I think it would be huge for this Liverpool team because they've really done the maximum I think they could with this squad. And I think to be able to rotate just a little bit more and to have slightly more solutions on the bench would be, would be absolutely huge for this team. So Werner is available even in coronavirus prices for for a fee because of a release clause that is very very reasonable at 50 million pounds give or take and i think that liverpool if it hadn't been for this crisis would have already pulled the trigger on that leipzig are not really in a position to do anything because of the clause so it's not really down to whether they're open or not or not if a club agrees with werner and thinks that that price is right then then he's gone and uh, that explains why werner i think has no problems talking about it very openly because Basically, Liverpool just need to push a button and he'd be a Liverpool player. And the question is now, really, how will Liverpool estimate what the damage will be from coronavirus to their bottom line? And how much will they be in a position to still buy somebody like Werner when the transfer window really opens? And it'll be open much later this year. I think it'll probably only open in August, maybe end of July. And I think by that time, They'd be in a much better position to make that call. And I still think, that's just my, my feeling, that there's still a very, very good chance this will happen. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. It's kind of interesting you said that his best position is not as a nine. Because we've had um, we've had a lot of discussion in our group, in our group <laughs> between us as Liverpool fans, that he's coming in to replace, to replace Bobby <laughs> for me. But, oh, it's not, is it? So, yeah, because I watched him on... Well, he, they played on Saturday, right? And he was playing on the left. So it was very interesting. Very interesting is that because um, as Liverpool sometimes put um, Salah up front as a nine, and he's done pretty decent there. So I think it's one of them ones where he's probably going to come in and and alternate between the left and the right. But I'm going to move slightly away from the present and go back to the past. And um, back in 2012, Liverpool signed Nori Sahin from Real Madrid on loan and um, at that time it was a great coup because we thought it was a good replacement for Xabi Alonso but he's come to the club and all of a sudden he's playing as a number 10 do you know do you have any details as to why that move broke down and he didn't play as much games as we thought he would do no I, I can't tell you but I mean the, the unfortunate truth is that Shahi never really recovered his form since going to Real Madrid I mean I think he was like many club players at Dortmund playing at his absolute maximum because the system worked, because he was happy there. 
Mkhitaryan is another good example, not under Klopp so much, but under Tuchel at Dortmund, he was a wonderful player. Shinji Kagawa I could mention as well for, for Klopp. But you take them out of that functioning system and they're not quite the same. Uh, and at Real Madrid, it didn't work out for him. And then his career never really recovered. He went back to Dortmund. Now he's at Bremen, not really playing. His career kind of petered out. And again, I mean, it just happens sometimes. Uh, injuries, um, just loss of form, loss of confidence. I don't think there was a specific reason. But of course, we can also say that he joined a Liverpool that bore very little relation to the Liverpool he would have joined two, three years ago with a manager there who would have helped him maybe a little bit more than the ones he had when he was there, when which basically just, can you play? Yes, no. If you can't, then we'll just get somebody else. I think that's that was very much the mindset. And a lot of players, if you look at those years, they kind of went in, didn't do anything. Two years later, another one came and another one. There was a lot of turnover. Um, and it's only since Klopp has found that kind of consistency and stability that we see players really stay and grow. Um, and, you know, I will always remember his first press conference where he said, oh, everyone tells me that our players are terrible. I look at the players and I think actually they're pretty good. And he's referencing, you know, the likes of Lovren and Matip and Henderson, the people really want it out uh, as Liverpool fans. You know, we're basically saying this is not Liverpool. They can't be, they're not good enough for us. But um, things change when you have a manager that actually coaches properly. Um, and we've helps already touched on perform. one uh, Bundesliga player in Timo Werner, but... Are there any other uh, players that you could see uh, Liverpool potentially uh, signing that fit into the, the playing style and, and, more importantly, having the right amount of work ethic that Klopp asks of his players? Well, it's, it's hard to imagine uh, too many players coming in because who can really improve this team? Um, you can add to this team, but it's very difficult to say, you know, this is a weak spot, we need another guy. Yes, I think another centre-back would help. Um, you probably want to phase out maybe Lovren. Um, I can understand it. I think that Liverpool were also trying to find somebody who can play on the left to help out uh, Robertson on occasion. Uh, somebody who maybe can also play further forward and give you an extra, um, extra man if necessary up front. But it's very difficult to find players like that who will necessarily improve Europe's best team or the team that was your best team not long ago. So I find it really difficult to come up with names that would necessarily fit fit that bill. I mean, in an ideal world, as Liverpool, if you had endless amounts of money, you'd probably go and buy Dario Pomecano from Leipzig and stick him in next to Van Dijk, and then you have the world's best centre-back pairing for years to come. But I don't think they can, make, can buy Upamecano and Werner. Maybe they can't buy either if they're right and uh, they're taking such a big hit. Kai Havertz is a player that will be linked with, with every single Premier League team in the next few weeks. Does he really fit into the Liverpool side? I'm not so sure unless Liverpool really want to change the system and make it more 4-2-3-1. Because I think in the three midfield that Liverpool play at the moment, you'd probably lose too much of his his impact in the final third because he can't probably get into those positions as often enough. And then if you play him as a fourth attacker, then you probably suffer with the lack of balance that you had when sometimes Coutinho used to play behind the three. I mean, it looked super enticing and exciting on paper, but actually was always a little bit shaky. 
Um, so I don't really see him as the ideal signing for, for Liverpool either. And he's also going to be very, very expensive, 100 million easily. So uh, euros, but still um, very, very hard. I mean, <laughs> this is the kind of job that a good sporting director does. And that's why they get a lot of money. Um, so I'll pass the buck here and say, Michael Edwards, I'm sure, will figure something out. And Rafa, as you touched on there, there's some super talents in the Bundesliga. I mean, you mentioned like names like Kai Havertz. You can even add names like, you know, Hakimi and Guerrero. Obviously, I know Hakimi's on loan from Real Madrid. Um, there's some super talents in, in the Bundesliga, excluding Haaland and Sancho, who are obviously the, the main two superstar talents in, in the Bundesliga. Do you think there are any of the other talents that could potentially make the jump to, you know, potentially being a Ballon d'Or candidate in terms of winning the actual award? Oh, Ballon d'Or candidates. Um, That's tricky. I think Haaland has a chance. Um, Sancho has a chance. I think Leroy Sané will be a Bundesliga player soon and might have a chance. Um, I mean, we're talking sort of the cream of the cream. Um, I can't think of too many players who have been in the conversation. I mean, maybe... Maybe not quite a talent, but maybe Lewandowski this year, if he wins the Champions League for Bayern, I think it might be sort of a situation where somebody gets sort of their lifetime achievement award, uh, you know, in recognition, not necessarily because he's the best player on the planet right now, but because he was so consistent over many years. And uh, whenever Messi and Ronaldo don't win the Champions League, I think it maybe opens up the, the field just a little bit for somebody else. So maybe that is is conceivable. But yeah, in terms of players who might one day uh, be Ballon d'Or candidate. I would, I would definitely add Kai Havertz in the conversation. I think Alfonso Davis, maybe if he becomes a winger again and moves back into a more attacking position from left back, possible. But I think he's going to be there for, for years to come. So, yeah, these, these would be the names that, um, that I can think of at the moment. We're touching on some um, future talents and also over here in England, it's become quite a trend over the last couple of years for our young talents, um, especially from academies such as Jaden Sancho, uh, Reese Nelson, uh, Emil Smith-Rowe uh, went last year to RB Leipzig. Um, what do you think it is about the German the German league that's that's that that's that's so interested in our youngsters? What, and what is it that allows the um, in the German league, sorry, in the Bundesliga for our young English players to thrive instead of over here? So I think there's a few um, points worth making here. First of all, I think a lot of these guys in England are a little bit stuck. I mean, you see it with Phil Foden. Phil Foden would probably play out of the top 20 teams in the world. He'll probably get a game at 10 of them easily. But because he's as Manchester City, and Manchester City have a lot of fantastic players, he gets in and out uh, the odd game. He's like a League Cup player for them, really. Um, and Manchester City don't want to give the player to anyone else that they see as rivals. So you take five, five of the top 20 clubs to 30 clubs out of the equation. So then if you want to grow, what do you do as a player? You have two options, either you're three. You say, okay, I'm just going to wait. My time will come. That's the Ruben Loftus-Cheek option. I don't think that's necessarily a good one because I look at him and think, what kind of player could he have been if he'd had 200 Bundesliga games or 150 150 Premier League games maybe for a slightly smaller club rather than, I don't know how many he has, 80 maybe at Chelsea. Um, so that's an option, but it's not really a good one. The second option is what used to do, what used to happen is that clubs would send their players to a um, championship club 
or to a, a club that's fighting against relegation. Not a good option because these teams don't tend to play good football and you're lost. Yeah. Look at Serge Gnabry, what happened to him. Excellent example. <laughs> yeah. Completely lost. Completely lost. Okay. I'm not going to I'm not going to say that enough, you know, maybe some of it was his fault, but just the idea that you know you go from Arsenal playing Arsenal language football to Tony Pulis, what is it really going to do for your game? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy to think about it. So in a nutshell, these guys don't have anywhere else to go. And then the Bundesliga come along, or at least a few clubs, and say, look, we have quite a bit of money. We can up your way just as a big factor, right? I mean, Callum Hudson-Odoi was not tempted because he wanted to wear Lederhosen in Munich. <laughs> Maybe that was part of the attraction, but he he was offered huge wages for somebody who's just come up from the academy. He was offered uh, a realistic prospect of game time. And it was very, very exciting to play not in front of not with the reserves in King's Meadow, I don't know where Chelsea play, in front of 50 people, but to play in the Allianz Arena in front of 70,000 and play in the Champions League. So for those guys, for the Sanchos, for the Kalamatsun Zodois, for the Rabi Matondos, it's basically a no-brainer because they say, OK, I can play in a top league, I can play with a top manager, I can play in the Champions League, and if this works out, I'll go back to England at three or four times the same money that I would have made if I'd stayed. And I'd be a superstar. And I think that Jaden Sancho was the first one and the smartest one to realize that chance. And he's opened the door for a lot of people who perhaps wouldn't have considered it before and would have been happy to, to just sit and wait and maybe pick up the 50 grand rather than really push and, and make it to the next level. But I think he's been a trailblazer, a pioneer. And um, for the very best, and it'll only really work for the very best, and the very best of the German clubs, it'll still be a viable option to, to make it happen. And um, that's, that's really the attraction. It's a, it's a mutually beneficial uh, niche, I think, as far as the supply and the demand is concerned. Yeah, nice. that's, a, that's a good point. Obviously, just yeah, sticking on to the transfers, um, obviously, with the global pandemic um, occurring right now, do you do you see any big money moves? Yeah, Sancho's, your Havertz. I know you said um, Sane is most likely moving back to Germany. I, know, I saw a rumour of Sancho, uh, not Sancho, uh, Sane to Liverpool. Do you want to also touch on that as well? So any big money moves that you see, would it, would it continue to occur or is that all dead in the water? And also the rumours uh, of Sane to Liverpool. But I think signing to Liverpool is, is really just a rumour. and I, I don't know exactly where it came from. I don't think it's a realistic option. Uh, with a big money moves, no one can really say because it is dependent on a lot of factors. For the big clubs, what is important is, do we finish in the Champions League? What is our income next season? How much money are we losing because we cannot open our stadiums? When will the stadiums be reopened? So what now might look like a 100 million euro hit, by the time it's August, September and football has come back and maybe there's some signs of crowds coming back, etc., might only work a 50 million uh, euro hit. So very, very hard to say right now how that will affect the transfer market. My best guess, and I think most people I speak to would, would reflect it in a similar way, is that the value at the very top will hold so what happens in a depressed market to the top assets? They just don't get sold. 
because the the the, the would be sellers say, yeah, I understand that you don't have the money, but we're just going to hold on to the plane. Why would we sell him now for fifty million if next year everything bounces back and he's worth a hundred again? We're just going to wait a year. So the actual big moves will either happen or will not happen. But I don't think that the money will necessarily go down. However, when it comes to the 10, the 15, maybe the 20 million pound players, I think we're going to see a knock-on effect because these clubs who would buy these kind of players, they're much able, much less able to withstand the, the pressure and the hit that comes from the financial problems of, of losing money. So there, I think we're going to see more swap deals, more loan deals, um, you know, people trying to be creative, maybe backload the contract saying, okay, in the first year you'll get this, but next year... If, Everything bounces back. We get in the Champions League, you get double. There'll be these kind of discussions going on. Um, so not really possible to answer the question. I think we can only kind of speculate and and guess at where the trend is going. But I think that's the general reaction, general direction of of travel, um, both for the bigger deals and for the for the smaller ones. Can I just ask a quick question on Sane? Um, because to me personally, I don't know if it's for everyone else, but it's kind of come as a big surprise that he wants, he quite, what well, well, it seems to be quite adamant to leave a successful club like Man City to go to Bayern Munich. Do you do you have any like information on why he's particularly been so adamant in leaving um, Man City to go to Bayern Munich, um, apart from obviously be him being home in Germany? I don't think it's necessarily about him being adamant about leaving City, but you know, you get to a point where you you're up for a new contract, and then City, I think, have made an offer um, a couple of years ago, or maybe 18 months ago, and um, I think he felt, you know what, I'm going to make the next big step up, and we're going to come some kind of superstar uh, rather than the guy that Pep brings on or doesn't play in the semi-final of the Champions League, which is a bit annoying if I'm Leo Sane. Mm. Um, there is this concern I think or this this uh, factor of going back to Germany and perhaps living in a in a different city than than Manchester I think maybe if you know Spanish clubs would have been interested we might have seen a different um, different kind of discussion different kind of uh, debate going on but Bayern were just so keen to get this guy and as soon as they had an inclination that he would be on the market they really really pushed and um, you know they, they threw everything at him people called him up um, the president, the former president called him, the coach called him, um, wow. his agents would have had a lot of uh, discussions, would have been offered a lot of money. And I think Bayern are convinced that he's going to be one of the next German superstars or future German superstars. And they have this entitlement, if you will, or ambition that all the best German players should always play in Munich. And so, um, so, so they're just pursuing this. To the point where I think the players found it very hard to say no. I mean, to give you a good example from the past, Michael Balak moved for free to Chelsea. He ran down his contract. And Bayern was very upset about that, obviously. But up until uh, November of that year before, before he left, they were still offering him loads of money and really trying anything for him to stay. And it got to the point where Balak told his agent, look, I don't want to talk to these people under me, I don't want to talk to the president anymore because <laughs> I'm afraid they might convince me that I'm going to stay. <laughs> so please, please make sure they don't talk to me anymore. And, uh, in the end, he left. So what I'm trying to say is that buying can be very persuasive if they really want. 
Is it also a, a like a, if you're a young boy in Germany, like a sense of pride? You pr- finally getting to play, finally getting that interest from Bayern, um, especially even if you're at a big club like Man City, especially being a German native. I think there is that. There is there is that sense of I'm at the top. I've done it. You know, I'm at the very top of what I can do as a German if I play for Bayern Munich. Um, they have that special pool that Real Madrid and Barcelona have um, for Spanish, for Latin players. And there's another factor. Bayern also have power. If you're a Bayern Munich player and it's between you and the guy from Leverkusen or maybe even Dortmund, chances are that the national manager is going to pick you because he knows if he doesn't, then it's going to be a massive public debate. Uh, all the Bayern Munich players are going to come out and say, hey, why, this, why isn't this guy playing? So basically you get, you get influence, you get the protection, you get that political power that comes with being the biggest and most influential team. And I think some players are not concerned about it, but some are aware of it. And um, that's another reason why Bayern have this appeal. You know, if you want to win stuff and you want to have the best possible chance of winning as a German, Bayern will be your first port of call. Maybe not your last one, because maybe afterwards you feel that you want to go to Spain or, or even to the Premier League after one of the key reasons we brought you on, as you are uh, the man who's quite literally written the book on Jurgen Klopp, um, Klopp Bring the Noise, which um, we've all read over the past few days, and it's it's a brilliant read and a great insight to, to the man himself. Um, so it, 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 in the book, um, you kind of touch on Klopp and a lot of his main drivers of what have kind of developed him as not only a manager, but as a person. Uh, so, what would you what would you say to someone who hasn't read the book? Would be uh, the main elements that have gone into that drive that has him to that, that makes him really want to succeed in everything that he does, and how that's really reflective in his um, quite rebellious personality. Um, I think we had we had a discussion uh, the other day that we've never actually seen him wear a suit in the dugout. He's always in his uh, in his tracksuit and his baseball cap. Yeah, my theory is that um, because he wore a suit at the uh, final in um, at Wembley, um, that he's just felt, you know, I'm not going to do that again. But uh, that's just my that's just my theory. Maybe he's a little bit superstitious. Um, I mean, that question is hard to answer with a soundbite or two. Um, the guy, I think, has two things. One is. He is incredibly ambitious. I think it's something that you're born with. In his case, it was also drummed into him by his, his father, who was who was a sports crazy person who made his son play tennis, football, ski, uh, you name it, and really forced him into just kind of beating him. And um, that was all he did. I mean, the guy just had to do sports and eventually developed this hugely competitive streak, which you need, I think, if you want to succeed as a player and later as a manager. But it's combined with something that I think not every manager has, maybe so much, and that is a real passion for helping people to do stuff. Um, you know, teachers have it, doctors have it, uh, you know, club references these, these type of professions because ultimately he is in a similar job as far as he's concerned. He doesn't want to manage people. He doesn't want to buy and sell people like the old school managers did. He doesn't want to just bark out orders and be the guy that is on the throne. He wants to help people. He wants to help them perform and coach them and bring out the best of them. That's what, that's where he gets his joy. Now, if you can do both, 
if you can help people perform and if you can do it in a way collectively that helps your team perform and win games, then you have a very strong combination. And everything else, you know, his man management, his tactics, these are kind of, I don't want to say nuances, but it basically just just an extension of these other two factors, the ambition, but also this the passion and the the joy that he gets from helping people perform. I think that makes him a really effective manager. And Ralph, in chapter six of the book, you look at um, Jurgen Klopp's main coach and influences, so Arrigo Saki and Wolfgang Frank. And I think it's a journey now. So the Klopp we we got in 2015. I think the, the clock we have now is, is much better. I think he's probably the best coach in the world at the moment. You know, he's obviously won the Champions League last season and we won the, or hopefully going to win the Premier League this season. And, you know, looking at his coaching influences in Arrigo Saki and Wolfgang Frank, you know, to what extent do they influence his tactical approach today and his sort of man management style? Well, I think, I mean, Wolfgang Frank really is the is the starting point for, for everything for Klopp. And Wolfgang Frank was, was Klopp's football father. Uh, and without him, Klopp, I don't think, would have become the manager he is today and perhaps would have never become a manager. A lot of Wolfgang Frank's ideas were themselves influenced by Rigosaki and uh, some of the Dutch school, pressing, zonal marking, moving as a back four, stuff that is today mundane but at the time was revolutionary and very very new and attractive and and innovative i should say um but what club has done and i think what's more important than that is he's kept on learning you know he never arrived in england thinking i know everything i'm just going to now do what i did at dortmund and it's going to be fine um might take a couple of years but then we're going to win i think it was a constant awareness that things Will be different that things are developing that mistakes will be will happen that there's going to be an adjustment that you're going to try certain things that you will not have success with all the players that there some buy into the system some don't buy in the system and then you have to get rid of them um you know you just look at the big name casualties after that first year who went because you just couldn't work with them it just didn't work out and even when it comes to the influence of pepin linders for example i think it just shows you that clock is willing to learn and just to add to his experience and as to a sort of uh, treasure trove of situations that he's already been in, that he can relate to when it comes to dealing with new situations, but at the same time never losing that curiosity to just keep improving and keep learning. And, you know, if you've read the book, you, you, you would have read um, some of the lengthy interviews with his, um, another of his right-hand man, with Pete Kravitz, who says all the time, Football is a learning process. Football is this thing that you just keep on trying to master. You know you're never going to really fully master it, but you're going to try as much as you can to have a plan that will work. And if it doesn't quite work, then you work on it and then until you get it right. And then still you keep working because things around you change and you have to keep up with it. So I think it comes from that drive, from that um, willingness to work hard, to think hard about the game and to to make the right decisions. And I think now he's at a point where you probably couldn't tell you sort of where am I looking. I mean, look at what he does before the games. He will always watch the warm-up of the opposition team. And I don't think he's doing it to freak them out. I think he's doing it because he's thinking, you know, maybe I can pick up something here. Maybe they're doing something that we haven't done yet. 
And uh, if it looks good, I'm maybe going to try it. So that is that is the mindset. And they've, they've come to the point where the team just functions so well. Um, but knowing him and knowing the people around him, they're just going to think really, really hard of how they can get even better next year because he's not the sort of guy that says, you know, we've cracked it now, we'll just now take it easy and just let up a bit and just give the boys a break. No, it's going to be the opposite. Yeah, that's, that's a good insight to him. I also want to talk about his man management because he, he's um, often come out and said that the boys are, to him, they are his friends, but they're not best friends. Um, how uh, how would you, how would I say, how does that help him get the best out of the players? Well, first, I, I want to come back to what I said earlier. I think if you help the people that you work with, then they will love you because they see that you can help them be better in their job. I mean, that's a, that's everybody's dream, right? You have a boss or maybe a, or the brother or maybe an uncle that just takes you by the hand and just helps you and gives you those pointers to be better at what you're doing. Okay. And then you will love that guy. So there is real love, I think, from the players to the manager. And I think because he cares about them, also from the manager to the players. But it's not an unconditional love. It's not the love of a child to, to a father or father to a child where you're going to love them no matter what. It is conditional on both parties doing their job. As soon as you stop doing your job with Jurgen Klopp, you're going to fall, he's going to fall out of love with you and he's going to show you um, and vice versa. And it's always really interesting to look at his reactions after the game. Some players will get hugs. Some players, he'll maybe just give a bit of a slap. Some players, he's kind of a bit cooler. Everything is a message here, you know? And um, if you do your job properly, then he will make you feel very, very valued and um, and close. And if you feel that you don't want to listen and, you know, you know everything, then he's going to, you're just going to be gone. So I don't think it's, it's friends in that sense. You know, I think it's a working relationship, but they're real emotions that underpin it. And the best example to I can give is when they won last year in, uh, in Madrid. It was remarkable how everyone just spoke about their, the joy that they felt for somebody else. So Henderson said he was happy for the team and for the fans. Uh, Van Dijk said he was happy for Klopp. Klopp said he was happy for the players and for the people around him because his family, they cannot stand it. When he loses, they get really upset. And I think that was really, really remarkable because there's often a lot of, oh, I've done it. Here's the cup. I'm the best. But that wasn't the case with Liverpool. It was all about, yeah, we've done it together. And that is a really strong, I think, indication of the kind of management and the kind of atmosphere that he's created at Liverpool. And Raph, looking again at, at Klopp and his relationship, and looking at his relationship with, with Liverpool club and the city, I think the thing that I really enjoyed a lot about Klopp's time here is he just gets to the city, like he just understands the culture of the city and he just has a real feel for the city. And I compare him to Rafa Benitez, who also had a sort of similar relationship with the city. He just really got it, if you like. And you look at managers like Hodgson, who didn't quite get the to city or the culture of, of, of the city in Liverpool. And yeah, just would like would love for you to expand briefly on Klopp's relationship with Liverpool City and, and why he fits in so well into the city. 
I think, first of all, he gets it. I think that that is the, the main point. He understands what it means for for a club to be rooted in the city and also how much power and energy can generate if you harness those connections, if you don't just treat it as a job. I, I think Guardiola is is an unbelievably good manager, but I think Guardiola never really cared that much about Munich as a city uh, for the fans, I don't think he really cares about Manchester City. Um, with Klopp, it's always because I think because of his history, because where he came from in Mainz, where they had very little apart from being a quirky city and and a kind of a strange environment for a club, that he's always understood that you have to push those buttons and really utilize those forces, that power, if you want to push the team that extra couple of percentage points further. It has a lovely side effect that you also make everybody else happy. But I think, first of all, I think Klopp understands what it means for the for the players to have that kind of support. And um, therefore, he does his best to have this close connection between the club and the players and the fans because otherwise that extra energy, the extra power cannot be generated. And for him, I think it's just part of the job uh, and I, I don't mean to sound sort of too calculated or, or um, you know, professional in that sense, but I think he sees that as actually part of the deal, that when you come somewhere, you utilize everything that you have. And with Liverpool, you'd be an idiot if you didn't harness the power of, of Anfield and of at least half of the city. Uh, with Klopp, um, speaking of him as a coach, uh, in regards to his time at Dortmund uh, versus his time at LFC, and even to be honest, when you when you finished off the book, which was I believe around 2017 when it was released, um, compared to that and 2019 Klopp, who's and 20, 2019 2020 Klopp, is there any maturing in his coaching style, in his um, in his style of play, or in his tactics at all? I think maturity is maybe the wrong word because it would suggest that somehow he was a little bit unfinished or naive early on. I don't think that's the case, but look, tactics in the end is the football that your team plays. That's the tactics. And when you have a team of Liverpool's quality, your tactics are going to look very different than Mainz, who had very little quality, or Dortmund, who sort of had a bit of quality, but maybe not quite the same quality throughout that Liverpool now have. Um, so that is a development where it's hard to say, you know, what is first? Is the tactics first changed and then the team respond and then, you know, the tactics follow again or is it just a thing that happens kind of by osmosis at the same time together? Um, I think if you think about him personally, I have no doubt that he's become a little bit more chilled, a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more confident. One of the most interesting things I found from when I did the update of the book is that I said to Pete Kravitz, well, Klopp looks a lot more restrained on the touchline. We don't see him going crazy just quite as much anymore. He said, yes, well, first of all, the team works better in a sense that we don't have to do all that stuff to help them because they just do their thing and win anyway. But also that you want to project, you want to project that confidence because if you tell your players, look, I know that you can do this, that you're going to be fine. You also don't have to be giving off those vibes. If you go crazy on the touchline and become super nervous after one second, the team will think, oh, you know, maybe he doesn't believe that we're that good. Or maybe we're, you know, 
something is wrong here and he thinks we're, we're, we're playing terribly. So it's both a cause and an effect that Liverpool are more in control, that Klopp is more in control on a touchdown. Do you also believe that um, with uh, Liverpool now, especially with you know Klopp having you know been there with a, a couple of players for a couple of years now, that there's a few more leaders in the change room as compared to his time at Dortmund, so he can kind of maintain this this era of dominance as compared to when Dortmund where it was you know two years of great football and great dominance um, in the league, and it all kind of you know as as you said the stars went away and it fell apart. So do you think there's a personnel, uh, per, uh, uh, you know, some sort of a more leaders personnel at Liverpool compared to Dortmund? I, I don't know if it's about leaders, but certainly the ability to hold on to the big players is absolutely key. I mean, he was never been in a position before where the best players just a find it really difficult to imagine where they could go to improve their chances of let's say winning a Champions League or winning a title. You, you're already at the best club. Um, so the only reason you would go is for money or maybe romantic reasons if you want to play for, for Real Madrid or Barcelona. Um, and instead of rebuilding every two years, you can actually just build and add a few pieces at the top. And you're even in a position as they were last year where they said, you know what, we don't need anyone. So that is, that is a very different and much more comfortable situation to be in anything he's experienced before and um, it comes with its own challenge because he has to have to keep things fresh and make sure that you know people still listen to you and that they can still perform um, but I think it's a much better scenario than having to worry about your best players leaving all the time either they leave or they're about to leave so there was always a distraction and now we're at a you know in the second year where there's almost no discussion of big players leaving uh, at least not a credible one, and that is a fantastic position to be in for any for any big club. Um, okay. uh, Rafa, um, do you do you see any real parallels between the the title winning Dortmund teams and this current Liverpool Liverpool team? Um, I mean, they're both Jurgen Klopp teams, and you can see that in the way they play, but. Dortmund were not quite as refined a side in 2012 as this Liverpool team are. Dortmund did really well, but they didn't blow away the competition that Liverpool have done in the in the Premier League, uh, dropping, what, two points so far? Um, or is it four? I, don't, I can't even remember. Um, I mean, they're ridiculously, ridiculously um, consistent now, whereas Dortmund were very good, but... I think they finished with 83 points, which was a record at the time, but has since been broken a couple of times for Pep Guardiola's Bayern. So impressive, but not quite Liverpool 2020 impressive. Um, yeah, the parallels, again, I think hopefully it comes through in the book, is that his man management, you know, his underlying principles, both as football um, coach in a technical sense, but also in a human sense, I think these they haven't really changed. But of course, the personnel has changed. Um, 2020 is a very different year to play that kind of football. You have to be a lot more refined. You can't just press, 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 and just think that your position are just going to not be able to deal with it because they've never seen a team press like that before. It's much, much more common now. And, uh, and of course, also Liverpool, you know, had to become a a more versatile side because 
what Dortmund couldn't do is really develop that second string to their bow, if you will. The to break down teams in possession in a slower, more controlled manner. Liverpool have done that. Uh, and they had to because teams, even as early as 2016, just said, OK, Liverpool, you're very good in transition. Fine. Here, have the ball. They'll do something with it. And you could see that the progress was made, but it took, took a couple of years before they really got to the level where they could consistently just knock out these wins against the lesser sides. And there's no longer a question, you know, you come up against a, a bottom team that they will find a way. Whereas in the beginning, it was all very, very fraught and very difficult. You know, can they break them down? It's going to be hard, etc. And often they didn't. So that's where they've made huge progress. Okay, uh, one of our um, one of the Bundesliga experts that um, is currently in our Liverpool squad and has been a success for us is uh, Roberto Firmino. And when I'm when we first bought him, um, he was a number ten at Hoffenheim. But I would wouldn't lie, and I guarantee you that ninety percent of Liverpool fans would be lying if they said that they saw him in Bundesliga. So his transition from a number ten, um, kind of a second striker to an actual number nine, how has that been seen um, amongst in, in Germany? Is that seen as a as, a, as an unexpected change from his role at, at Hoffenheim? Um, I don't know if people really look into that deeply, but uh, first of all, they realised that this guy was maybe undervalued a little bit. I mean, I must admit, when Liverpool bought him, I thought that £40 million pounds or whatever it was, or €40 million Euros was a lot of money at the time. I thought maybe they've overpaid a little bit. Um, he was inconsistent. He would do some amazing stuff then go missing for two or three games. And that's the reason, for example, Bayern, who looked at him as well and liked him, thought ultimately, you know what? We can't really see where he's going to play for us. We have Thomas Müller as a number 10, and he's not really a, a real winger. Um, and I think it's Klopp's genius in many ways that he's found a position for him that doesn't really exist in any other side. I mean, I don't, you know, you look around the best teams in Europe and none of them really play without a real centre forward. I mean, mm-hmm. he is not a centre-forward. He is like a number 10 that has licence to be a number 9 when he wants to be and when he needs to be, but is also the first guy that will press the opposition when they when Liverpool lose possession. So, unbelievably important player, very, very unique, but hard, I think, for anyone else to imagine that this was going to be his development. So, I don't think people think that, you know, somehow they kind of misjudged him or something. They just They just look at Klopp and think, wow, it's just another player that Klopp has really made into an absolute superstar where we perhaps didn't think that it, he had it in him. Um, Rafa, I think the big challenge for this Liverpool side now is sustained success. I think there are parallels between this side and the United side from the mid north East, so the side that had Ronaldo, Rooney, Tevez. Obviously, you have a devastating front three, and then you have your, your defence, which is really, really good. And the thing that United team did is they won three leagues on the bounce, and they reached, I think, two Champions League finals that that team did as well. And obviously, we've we reached two MC finals. We won one of them. Um, we lost one of them. We're gonna, hopefully going to win the league this season. But how does Klopp create that sort of winning mentality where we go next season and we're you know, trying to win the league and the Champions League again? I think that's a mark of a really great side. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that is going to be the challenge. That's going to be the challenge to keep, to keep going and to do it again. But I think the joy that you get from winning especially under Jurgen Klopp, where you know that winning is just going to be extra fun because of all these emotional connections that exist between you and your teammates and the coach and the fans, that you just want to you want to have that feeling. I think it is it becomes like a drug. I think with Ferguson, there was a lot of fear 
and there was pressure. I think with Klopp it's different, but I think he can just be as successful just playing on the positive emotions of 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 winning. I think it was Gary Neville who once said he would <laughs> we basically won because we were too afraid to lose under Ferguson. I think with Klopp it's not gonna be that way. Of course Klopp can be a bit of a mean guy when he loses. You see it in this T V interviews and I think players also feel it when they don't perform. Um, he lets them feel it. So there is that. They don't want to get on, on the wrong side of him. But I think the much bigger motivation is just that winning and then that sense of achievement. And, you know, they tasted it at, uh, in Madrid. I think Madrid is a huge reason why the Premier League is being won this year. That extra bit of confidence, that extra bit of belief, that extra bit of um, feeling good about yourself has really helped this team. And I don't see how in the next two, three years it's going to it's going to change. The only question is, you know, can they keep fresh enough and just keep developing, keep um, adding things without losing your your core strength? And that is that is the the challenge, you know, to change while staying the same to a certain extent, which is is tricky, but it's necessary. If Liverpool really will want to become sort of a, a bit of a dynasty, just a quickly double back add on two or three Rashford, more big um, titles in the next few years. In regards to last year's Champions League win, how was that perceived um, in, in Germany, um, kind of by by pundits and, and German fans as, as as an achievement for Klopp? Was it kind of like a sense of joy that kind of seeing a German manager lift a lift a Champions League trophy, albeit not with a German club? Yeah, I think it was that. It was joy. It was a sense of pride that a German manager was at the top of European football, uh, had done it at a club with such historic significance of Liverpool. And I think that was the moment where Klopp went from already being very successful, very uh, popular guy to being sort of a national treasure in football terms. Because if if you're a Dortmund coach, very difficult for Schalke and Bayern coach to really love you. If you do it for Liverpool, much, much easier to to admire what you've done it doesn't hurt you it doesn't you know have any negative effect on you even though on, on buying it did uh, as far as the last 16 was concerned but even they would say um shame that he isn't our coach shame that we had Niko Kovac uh, the other way around that might have been a different result so um yeah he definitely went up another level in the estimation of of, of uh, the German public and he is now the closest, I think, that we have to sort of a Franz Beckenbauer figure a few years ago where he's kind of the guy that everybody listens to, that everybody looks up to. That's brilliant, Ralph. Obviously, um, we've got a few listeners' questions. But before we head into that, final question for me is, has Klopp brought the noise to Anfield? <laughs> I think that's a rhetorical question. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Such a good answer. Um, yeah, like like Alice did say, we do have. Um, obviously, really appreciate yeah. if you're kind of like taking time out to talk to us. And I'm fully aware it's gone dark outside since we've uh, since we started talking. Um, but we do have a few listeners' questions, so I'll um, kind of do, do my best to get through these as quickly as possible. Uh, this one comes from uh, a friend of the pod, Mush. Um, obviously, in England, we have the big. Gerard Lampard and Skulls debate. So he wants to know um, if there is kind of like a general opinion of who is the better player of the three in Germany. Uh, obviously, with your own uh, opinion in that too. 
And is there kind of the German equivalent of that debate? Um, no, there is not that German equivalent of that debate because we never had three players um, playing in similar positions for three different clubs at the same time and kind of being effectively rivals for that position. I mean, it did happen in the 70s before my time when you had good Tanetsa Wolfgang Overath, but yeah, I can only give you secondhand um, impressions of that. Um, I don't think there's a German view. I think these players wouldn't have featured quite enough for, for Germans to have a view. I think Jared is the one that would have caught the eye most because he is the guy that um, would score the most you know, uh, eye-catching goals and has the kind of the playing style, which is easiest, I think, to, to get excited about. I mean, Lampard was, was more, I think, a guy who worked at the very maximum of his potential, which perhaps in terms of real talent wasn't quite at Jared's level. Um, but of course, maximized his, his his performances and was was incredibly consistent. And with Scholes, I think Scholes. I might think about Scholes differently now because I think what Scholes did wasn't really that appreciated at the time. Scholes was a possession player, was a Spanish, was an English version of a of a of a Xavi, um, you know, or a Xavi Alonso. And I think these players at the time, perhaps, we didn't quite understand how important it is to have a guy like that. I mean, we look at a guy like a Jared or even a Lampard who scores the goal, but perhaps overlooked guys like that. And um, really have to see scores again and kind of reevaluate his, his game. At the time, I thought, yeah, he's good, but I don't really see what, what the big fuss is about. And... I would chalk it down to maybe just not understanding the game as well as I as I perhaps do now. Um, also, with tactics having changed and become um, more possession orientated, um, maybe he was just a little bit unlucky to play sort of at a time when, yeah, when his his Who particular playing style wasn't whatever, fully appreciated. Thrived the most in kind of the, those early two thousand, so no, uh, yeah, uh, sorry, early two thousand ten uh, Bayern Munich teams. Um, good question. I mean, Bayern tried to sign Gerard. Um, it didn't really go anywhere, but he did. They did make him a big offer. Mm. I think if you think about Bayern in terms of Louis van Gaal and then Pep, then I think Skulls mm. at his very best would have been would have been a great great addition to that. He could have done what what Kroos did, what what Schweinsteiger did to a certain extent, what Lahm did later, what Xavi Alonso did. Yeah, I think. He, that's why I said he, well, I used the example of Barcelona, I think he would have been that type of player and that type of team. So, yeah, I think it's easiest to see him thrive <laughs> and thrive in a very uh, This is a question kind of from um, one of our, one of our <laughs> colleagues, Fahi. Um, he asks, why has Klopp resisted, resisted the urge to sign players he previously worked with at Dortmund? Now, obviously, I know he's come out previously and said that he kind of likes to work with newer players as opposed to players he's worked with before. But he says that um, we all expected he would have signed one or two when he first joined, but uh, not signing any in the space of five years is slightly surprising. Yeah, it is. I mean, he wanted to sign Murray Goetze. Um, that got very, very, very close. And in the end, it didn't quite work out. Um, I don't think there's necessarily a dogmatic reason for him to say not, no Dortmund players for me ever again. Um, first of all, Dortmund... Even Dortmund don't have that many players that can really improve a Liverpool side now. 
And earlier than that, I think Klopp is not a is not a manager that wants to buy and sell players. I mean, he'll have a certain view, and uh, you know, if he has a certain idea, he'll he'll I'm sure discuss it. But he, like most German managers, is used to sporting directors buying the players. He will have a need. You say, you know, we need a left back, and then you can either say, okay, what left back do I know? What left back have I played up played against? Or you go to Michael Edwards and say, yeah, we have a data. Uh, um, data file here with 300 left backs and we're just going to s- filter out the ones who are available in the next two, three years and then drill it down. And I can guarantee you that Jurgen Klopp would not have said, oh, you know what, this guy from Hull, uh, Andy Robertson, uh, I really saw Hull play many times. He's a brilliant player. This is a classic example of a club working well where the sporting director just comes up with that with that idea. So. I think it's often a little bit misunderstood when people say, you know what, oh, at Dortmund, he signed this guy, signed that guy. He didn't really. Um, they had a sporting director, they had a scout. Of course, he had a view, of course, he had certain ideas. But like most of the really well-run clubs, uh, just last, last a manager who got, buys and signs um, players. comes from uh, G-Day. Um, there was a transfer, there was a period of time in terms of transfers when uh, Dortmund kept beating us to certain signings. Um, I think the ones that come to mind are kind of Dahoud, uh, Usman Dembele and Emre Moore, which seems like a bit of a strange one now. Um, is there any kind of specific reasoning reasoning for that? Obviously, you feel that we've got the, the manager in place, uh, just wasn't the pull of the club, wasn't there? Mkhitaryan as well. Uh, he Liverpool really wanted to sign him. Um, I, I think the best answer is that both Liverpool and Dortmund are good at when it comes to identifying the same targets. No, not all of these players have really worked out, um, but they all saw something. In, but they both saw something in them, and um, you know, ultimately, then comes down to the money on the table, the kind of relationship with you have with your you have with the with the agent. I mean, both Mkhitaryan and um, Erling Haaland were. Are represented by Mino Raiola. A lot of clubs have real problems dealing with him. Dortmund have a good relationship with him, and that's why they got the deal done. So, not necessarily always, you know, to do with kind of factors that are to do with where Liverpool sit in in the grand scheme of things about their chances or Dortmund's chances. It could be really sort of details and and things that are not really connected to to football in a, in a, in a um, you know more narrow sense. And yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't read too much into it. Um, what I would say is that if Dortmund, with their track record, despite one or two players who haven't worked out, if Dortmund and Liverpool want the same player, then I think you are um, probably in a position to say that he, he's a good one. I mean, just to name one name, um, Klopp wasn't so sure, as far as I know, about Mo Salah. He preferred Julian Brandt. Uh, Julian Brandt went to Dortmund. Um, and Julian Brandt is not the same player. He's become more of a number 10 type player, but he's a phenomenal player. So it just shows you that um, both Dortmund and Liverpool have a, it's a very good, uh, Michael Zorc pretty good and, handle uh, on Michael who's Edwards good doing and who's the old good. Spider-Man meme, pointing at each other in terms of transfer targets. <laughs> uh, 
Rafa, we massively appreciate you taking the time out of your evening to, to join us. Um, is there anything you want to plug for uh, the Athletic and BT Sport? Um, well, just to say thanks for, for having me if you want to um, follow my stuff on uh, mostly Bundesliga-related stuff. But, of course, there are crossover um, themes when it comes to potential targets from Liverpool, etc. Um, go and sign up for the Athletic. We have an offer at the moment, 40% off. If you go to www.athletic.com, theathletic.com forward slash Bundesliga's back. And um, if you want to see a bit of the Bundesliga, a bit of the teams that Jurgen Klopp was in charge with, and also maybe one or two players that will find their way to the Premier League, you want to see them now, go and uh, check them out on BT Sport because <laughs> there's not much Ash football on at the moment. So you could do. <laughs> Be doing worse than uh, again, Rafa. Thank you very much for taking the time out. Uh, and we'd be great if we could get you back on uh, again at some point later on in the year. Um, that has been this it's week's been episode of the Cop and Fracas, part of the Touchline Fracas Network. Uh, we'll be back next week with another uh, full pod. So until then, we'll speak to you soon. something amazing discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically dollar for dollar with no limit on how much you can earn extra cash come on how amazing is that in fact it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where discover is accepted 99 of places in the u.s that take credit cards so when it comes to discover get used to hearing yes more often learn more at discover.com slash yes 2020 nielsen report limitations apply Sports Social Podcast Network.